As Stephen Stewart says, the mining industry is a very interesting industry. I mean, where else are you going to talk about the moon, the bottom of the ocean, geopolitics, and the dollar? It all comes together interestingly in this Natural Resources Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And on the menu today, deep sea mining is back. We have some resolution, at least a resolution that there will be a delay. And this is really interesting because, of course, if you listened last week to my interview with Cecilia Jamazmi, senior editor at Mining.com, she was saying how the island of Nauru, which is just northeast of Australia, I looked it up, it's a very small island, that they had forced this issue where the ISA had to come up with rules of the road, so to speak, on how nations can proceed with deep-sea mining. There is a quote-unquote two-year rule that comes into effect when Nauru had applied. And apparently, on July 9th, this deadline had passed, and there has been a two-week conference in Kingston, Jamaica, by the ISA, which is the Council of the International Seabed Authority, which is, in contrast to the Assembly of the ISA, which is meeting now, following the two-week meeting of the council. So that is where we are with that. And apparently they are saying that they're going to delay any resolution or any you know rules until 2024. Now, you might ask, how is this possible? Nauru had already put in an application and the deadline was July 9th. And you might laugh. I mean, I definitely chuckled to myself. I mean, who hasn't experienced this? Paragraph 7 of this Reuters article that just came out a few hours ago. Nauru submitted an application two years ago, but the ISA said on Monday that no application to begin mining had been received to date. Sorry, I guess we haven't received your application, Nauru. Uh, Maybe you sent it to the wrong department, but as far as we can tell, there's no application here, and this deadline doesn't exist. Continues, the ISA council said in a statement that if an application for a plan of work was received before it had completed mining regulations, it would make a decision on how the two-year rule should be applied, quote, as a matter of priority, end quote, at its next meeting. So, kind of a classic bureaucratic move. I mean, it's almost like if you were, you know, applying for a work visa or something in a foreign country, and I'm sorry, we haven't received your application. Now, Gerard Barron, who has been on this program before as CEO of Deep Green. And Deep Green, of course, before that, was known as Nautilus Minerals. Now they are known as TMC, which is the mining company. And so Gerard Barron is now chairman and CEO of TMC. And he said in a statement that the company was, quote, disappointed, end quote, that the ISA had failed to complete regulations on time, but he was confident mining would begin soon. Quote, it is now a question of when... Rather than if commercial scale nodule collection will begin, I believe the finish line is now within sight, and we look forward to the consolidated regulatory text at the next meeting in November 2023. So, I guess the ISA Council is going to meet in November. And then it continues the ISA Assembly is meeting this week with opponents of deep sea mining expected to hold a vote among the authorities, 168 members aimed at imposing a moratorium. So this ISA is quite fascinating to me. Like it almost seems to me, even though it's a branch of the UN, it almost seems like a mini UN. 
It's a UN for the sea. I wonder if this already exists for outer space. Because again, what other subject are you going to find the deep sea and the moon and the dollar as part of the conversation? So mining, as Stephen Stewart says, is a fascinating business. And we have a wonderful interview with Stephen Stewart, CEO of the Ore Group, on this week's podcast, and of course, chairman of the Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund. It's great to have him back to get a view of both Canadian mining and just exploration in the mining industry in general. Stephen, of course, with the Ore Group, has seven companies under that banner, and they even have Ore Cap. I guess it's short for Ore Capital, which is a way to invest and take advantage of down markets. And it's quite interesting for all the interest in metals and natural resources right now, the explorers continue to really have a dearth of capital. They are really lacking funding. And it was eye-opening for me because I would have thought even in a tough market with all of the international push, particularly in the West, to secure the supply chain and minerals and resources and battery metals for all we see in the news. It's the exploration companies that are on the front lines of that battle, and they have no money. They have no investment, at least according to Stephen Stewart for, I think he said, 75% of these explorers, they have no investment. They are just doing nothing. They can't drill. They can't do anything. So pretty interesting as we try and get a comprehensive view of what's going on here from the EU Parliament down to the explorers in Saskatchewan. So that was fascinating. And also just an update on Stephen's view of exploration in Canada, how permitting is, and also from his vantage point as chairman of the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund, really a plea to give this industry a second look as there is a ton of money to be made And really, I have people who have reached out to me who have listened to this podcast who are interested in getting into mining, having never had anything to do with it, with engineering backgrounds, because they see opportunity and they see this as a way of helping solve the Earth's climate problems. So this is, I suspect, part of a larger trend. I think we're going to see more of it. I actually do think this is going to happen. I think young people are going to get more interested as the mining industry rebrands itself without it even trying as the solution to, you know, what the world is seeing as these wildfires in the Mediterranean. Now it's Sicily. I'm going to Rhodes in two weeks in theory. Let's see. I mean, there is one heck of a wildfire out there. It looks like it's starting to be put out, but then you just see Corfu has tons of fires. And then you see Sicily. I mean, the Mediterranean is on fire. This heat wave is pretty wild. And of course, the climate change debate continues because, of course, the first association is, well, this must be climate change. And then, of course, the political divisions and debates begin from there inevitably. But nevertheless, there is a sense out there that more needs to be done and that these green metals can help the transition. So many things going on as we attempt to create a synoptic view, a multi-leveled view of what is happening out there from Brussels to Saskatoon. And with that, we're going to go more in depth on deep sea mining and also more LME stories. And finally, for those that want to really meet some interesting people, we have a -a one-of-a-kind event coming up at the Canadian Mining Symposium. It is October 12th and 13th. 
in London, England, and it features some of the heaviest hitters in the mining industry, including Robert Friedland, Frank Justra, Catherine McLeod Seltzer, Don Lindsay, Sean Rosen, Randy Smallwood, John McCluskey, and David Garofalo. Just go to events.northernminer.com to secure your ticket. And also, if you're interested in sponsoring this unique event in the mining calendar, there are opportunities and there are links there. So a wonderful show coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, more details on this deep sea mining meeting. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Delegates to the UN-affiliated organization that regulates seabed mining cut a live stream of their negotiations Wednesday and retreated behind closed doors in an attempt to resolve a dilemma that could determine the fate of the deep ocean. The International Seabed Authority missed a deadline on July 9th to enact regulations to allow the mining of deep-sea ecosystems for valuable metals used in electric car batteries. That means the authority must accept license applications from mining companies. But the question of whether it must act and how on any submissions in the absence of environmental safeguards has stymied the council. While delegates negotiated out of sight, observers from environmental groups huddled in conversation outside the council chambers at the Jamaica Conference Center, a sort of tropical UN. Louisa Casson, a Greenpeace campaigner, worries a compromise could commit the ISA to review mining license applications by a certain date, even if regulations still aren't in place. Quote, it would be outrageous for negotiators here to cook up a deal that sets a start date for this risky industry. End quote. The authority is perhaps the world's most unusual international institution, with extraordinary powers to determine the future of the deep ocean, the world's last untouched wilderness. Pushed by Nauru, a tiny Pacific island nation, and an investor-backed seabed mining venture, the ISA this month is continuing to negotiate regulations that could allow mining to begin. The 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea created the authority to promote the exploitation of the seabed in international waters for the benefit of humankind, while seemingly contradictorily ensuring the effective protection of the marine environment. The treaty also directed the authority to establish the Enterprise, a for-profit corporation, to mine the seabed and share revenues and technology with developing nations. In other words, the authority will regulate its own company. For decades, the ISA had toiled away, out of sight and out of mind, writing rules for an industry that seemed far in the future. This week, as extreme climate-driven heatwaves broil the planet's biosphere, the regulation's final details are still being hammered out and could go into effect as early as next year. Now, though, the world's watching. A growing number of the Authority's 168 member nations, plus the European Union, are calling for a moratorium or pause on deep-sea mining due to a severe lack of scientific knowledge about the seabed ecosystems targeted for exploitation. The ISA has issued 31 licenses to mining contractors to explore the seabed for minerals, but none are yet allowed to start mining. Environmental activists, meanwhile, are pressuring corporations to pledge not to use or finance seabed minerals, lest they have the blood of otherworldly seabed-dwelling critters, like Casper the ghost octopus, on their hands. For a few weeks each year, Kingston is transformed into a diplomatic hub as hundreds of member state delegates, NGO observers, 
and mining contractors descend on the capital, whisked from their hotels to the authorities' harborside headquarters by a police escort that barrels through city streets, lights flashing, and sirens blaring. But escalating controversy has disrupted the authorities' clubby atmosphere, where the annual meetings long had the air of a family reunion. Matthew Janney, co-founder of an alliance of environmental groups called the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, recalls weekend retreats at a Jamaican resort where ISA participants would mingle. Quote, people really did socialize, contractors dancing with NGOs, NGOs with delegates. Nobody was really taking strong positions on things back then, and the negotiations were fairly easygoing. Sounds like people just enjoyed the fact that they could go to Jamaica, probably in an all-expenses-paid work vacation. The first ISA meeting I attended was in 2017. I was the only journalist there, and back then mining the seafloor still seemed a decade or more away. There were cocktail receptions on the lush grounds of the British High Commission and gathering at the hilltop estate of the Secretary General's official residence. The vibe was decidedly different when I walked into the ISA on Monday for the first time since the pandemic. Armed security guards and police roamed the building, and media were only permitted to attend one week of the three-week session and barred from the meeting chamber when delegates are in session. Tensions were rising since 2021 when Nauru triggered a rule requiring mining regulation to be enacted within two years. That focused global attention on the authority and its closeness to the mining contractors it regulates. Nauru is the ISA state sponsor of the Metals Company, a Canadian-registered firm, and it invoked the two-year provision shortly after executives told potential investors they expected to begin mining in 2024. That started a countdown to finish a complex set of regulations that had been in the works for more than five years. Temperatures at the authority are likely to rise in the final two days of the council session this week as delegates try to resolve what to do about the mining applications. Now, this was written July 20th, so this is now finished. At the same time, they're trying to come to terms on regulations that involve everything from setting royalties on mining revenues and how to share them among member states to establish environmental inspection and compliance procedures. The ISA Assembly, which is comprised of all member states, meets next week, which is now this week. Although it is the authority's final arbiter and usually approves the council's decisions, mining opponents plan to take their case to the Assembly's 169 members. Chile, France, Palau, and Vanuatu have submitted a proposal to the Assembly to prohibit the approval of any mining licenses until regulations are enacted. So basically a big official summary of what we have already discussed here, but now we know the story quite well here. And just a follow-up, explorer Victor Vescovo says deep-sea mining numbers don't add up, also Bloomberg News via mining.com, and it says here that private equity investor and deep-sea explorer Victor Vescovo flew to Kingston on Monday to make the business case against mining the ocean for valuable metals. Quote, I didn't come here because I'm a raving ocean environmentalist. I'm not, Vescovo told Bloomberg Green at a side event hosted by environmental group WWF. I'm first and foremost an industry private equity guy. I did the math, and deep-sea mining just doesn't work, as the risks are extraordinarily high. Vescovo in 2019 became the first person to venture to the deepest trenches in the world's five oceans, including piloting a submersible nearly seven miles down to the Challenger Deep. He is also co-founder of Texas private equity firm Insight Equity Holdings. 
In a talk at the WWF event, Vescovo, sporting a grey ponytail and a black suit, said the technological and financial uncertainties of mining metals thousands of miles from shore and miles below the surface of the ocean have been grossly underestimated. And we have a quote, it's an article of faith among these mining companies that they're going to make tons of money that it's just picking rocks up off the seafloor, he said. There's no just anything when you're at 4,000 meters in the ocean. It is an act of God to do anything at 4,000 meters. Everything breaks, everything is difficult. You're talking about sustained heavy mining operations in depths that exceed the depths of the Titanic. And then they quote TMC Chief Executive Officer Gerard Barron, who said in a statement that the abundance and high grade of metals in polymetallic nodules creates, quote, very attractive economics. And here's Gerard Barron. Quote, we will happily rely on our engineering partner, Alsees, for subject matter expertise, as they've been operating in the deep sea for 37 years, laying pipe in extreme 24-7 production environments for the offshore oil and gas industry. WWF are obviously out of arguments if the best they can do at their sponsored ISA event is put Mr. Vescovo in front of the assembled crowd as their expert. And then this is the counter-argument as well. Mexico's delegate to the ISA Council, Marcelino Miranda, was at the WWF event and told Vescovo, Nobody in the council is in favor of destroying the ocean. I wonder whether we are fighting the wrong enemy. Because actually the enemy right now of the ocean is global warming. Fossil fuels are the real danger, not an industry that doesn't exist yet. And this is what Cecilia Jamazmi brought up last week. This idea of having a balanced approach. Because as she was pointing out, nobody wants to destroy the ocean, but we may need the metals that are in the ocean because we don't have enough of these green metals which will help us transition off of fossil fuels. And then finally, Vescovo acknowledged that electric vehicles are important, and then he says, quote, But do you need to destroy thousands or tens of thousands of square kilometers of the deep sea floor to do it, just as an experiment to figure out what's going to work? I've been down there. I've seen the polymetallic fields, and there is no way to extract polymetallic nodules from the sea floor without utterly annihilating the bottom of the sea floor. It cannot be done. The debate continues here. Continuing on, Hydro says Russian metal threatens LME benchmark. Russell hits back. This is Reuters. Via mining.com, the London Metal Exchange should reconsider a decision not to ban Russian aluminum from its warehouse network as large volumes are jeopardizing the benchmark status of its contract, producer Norsk Hydro said in a letter this week. And we've been discussing this the last few weeks on the podcast, how there is an extra amount of Russian metal on the exchange, which is lowering the prices. Top Russian producer Russell hit back on Friday saying rival Hydro was aiming to destabilize the market for its own benefit. Russian aluminum amounted to 80% of available inventories in LME-registered warehouses in June, compared with 68% in May and 41% in January, and less than 18% last October. While there are no international sanctions on Russian metal, many consumers are shunning aluminum produced by Russell, which accounts for 6% of global supplies. And then scrolling down a bit, in a letter seen by Reuters, the Norwegian aluminum producer asked the world's largest forum for trading metals to reconsider its decision last November to keep Russian aluminum in the LME system. And the LME replied that it would reflect on relevant government sanctions and tariffs and monitor the market. Quote, we note that all metals of Russian origin continue to be consumed by a broad section of the market, and we will remain vigilant in respect of this matter. End quote. Continuing on, 
LME expects more fast-track listings after approval of new nickel brand, and this is Reuters via Mining.com. The London Metal Exchange said on Thursday it had approved nickel produced by Kuzu Yu Cobalt New Material, a subsidiary of China's Zhejiang Yu Cobalt as a list brand, and expects more brand applications in coming months. It is the first new approved brand for delivery against the LME nickel contract since the exchange cut the waiting times for listing as part of its program to revive nickel trade volumes after a 2022 crisis. And we have a quote from the LME, which is again owned by Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, which said, quote, we expect to see more fast-track applications come through in the coming months. Industry sources have said that the fast-track application could help to boost LME nickel liquidity, though it would take more than one new brand to address the issue of nickel inventories in the LME-registered warehouses, which are at their lowest since 2007. And for those that are wondering an update on the copper situation, it remains at 60,000 tons. So it actually went quite low briefly about a week and a half ago. I think it was down to 38 or 39,000 tons, so very low. But now it is looking fairly good. I mean, it's continued the trend where there is lower amounts of copper on the exchange, but the amounts that are there are almost all available. In other words, they're not being taken for delivery as of the most recent data provided by the LME, for those that might be wondering. So again, lowest nickel since 2007, fairly low copper inventories, aluminum, we were seeing issues. So it continues to be interesting there. EU courts further controversy by adding mining to green rulebook. Bloomberg News via mining.com. The European Union will include the mining of critical raw materials in its green investment rulebook as a priority to ensure the bloc isn't left behind on resources needed to boost clean technologies. Mayred McGuinness, the bloc's financial services commissioner, acknowledged that such a move is likely to draw more controversy for the EU's so-called taxonomy that aims to spur investment in climate-friendly economic activities. It has already been criticized for previous inclusions, such as gas and nuclear. Quote, we are going to have to do more mining in Europe. We do not want to create other harms, but we also have to be able to say there isn't a world where there aren't some challenges. Everything won't be 100% perfect, but it will be an awful lot better to live without fossil fuels. So, as Stephen Stewart says in this upcoming interview, there are going to be trade-offs here. And the EU seems to be recognizing that, interestingly. And just a few headlines UAE delegation signs $1.9 billion mining partnership with the Congo. So we just saw a story last week where the U.S. was trying to work with the Congo, and they would just put out legislation where they want to minimize the deal-making that China is doing with the Congo. And now the UAE has walked in with a $2 billion partnership. And it says the partnership, quote, will make it possible to set up more than four industrial mines, which should connect the provinces of South Kivu and Manima the president's office said. And these mines are rich in gold, tin ore, and tantalum. So the UAE definitely has a pretty good connection with gold. I believe there's a big smelter in the UAE, as far as I remember. And finally, U.S. imposes sanctions on Russian copper producer UMMC. So that is interesting. And another headline here, Chile wants to boost local copper smelting capacity to rely less on Asian plants. So Chile wants to smelt more copper locally, which is interesting. 
And this was interesting too. Chevron considers lithium production in latest EV bet by big oil. So Chevron is now getting into lithium. And this is after ExxonMobil in July said the energy giant is exploring opportunities to produce lithium. So Exxon started, now Chevron, I guess they're seeing there is a need to diversify as oil is really target number one of many governments here from an environmental perspective. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year bond. It is yielding 3.91%. So perking up a little bit, just as the U.K. 10-year is also perking up at 4.273%. So last week, the U.S. 10-year bond was at 376 so it is 0.15% higher than last week. Turning to metals, gold is trading at $1,964.75 per ounce. That is $19 higher than last week. Silver is at $24.59 per ounce. That is $0.22 lower than last week. Platinum is also lower at $959.87 per ounce. That is $18 lower than last week. And palladium is $7 lower at $1,278.65 per ounce. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny lower at $3.83 per pound. Iron ore is a dollar higher at $112.51 per metric ton. Aluminum is two cents lower at $1 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at 97 cents per pound. And nickel is lower at $9.32 per pound. That is 39 cents lower than last week. And tin is two cents lower at $12.93 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is $2 lower at $40.98 per kilogram. And uranium is slightly higher at $55.75 per pound. That is 35 cents higher than last week. And zinc is a penny higher at $1.10 per pound. Zooming out, I would say it's sort of the summer doldrums a little bit with gold being the standout, being $19 higher than last week. Otherwise, almost all metals are lower, with the exception of iron ore, uranium, and zinc, which are just slightly higher. So sort of an indecisive market here as we approach the end of July. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Stephen Stewart to the show, CEO of the Ore Group and chairman of the Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund. And it was a wonderful interview on the front lines of the exploration scene in Canada, the difficulty many exploration companies are having to get funding, and perhaps most importantly, what could be improved in the permitting process in order to find more deposits. I hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Join 
joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Stephen Stewart, CEO and director of the Org Group and founder and chairman of the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Hey, Adrian. Uh, always a pleasure to be here with you and the Northern Miner. Well, likewise, I'm so glad to have you on. I mean, I feel like you have a fairly comprehensive view of what's happening in Canadian mining, being a part of the Org Group and the seven companies that are associated with the group, also as chairman of Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund. So tell us, how is exploration going in Canadian mining? Well, it's good times and there's bad times. I guess that's sort of a summary, but I, I would say that almost any time, it just ultimately depends on your perspective. I'd suggest that if I was just the CEO of a single company, if that's my full-time experience in this industry, I'd be extremely frustrated, which which probably extends to probably about 95% of the individuals and the companies out there right now are frustrated because there is just a lack of general interest in the market, which is unfortunate, but that's the way it is. We're very cyclical and uh, we're very high risk. And uh, accordingly, when you lose that interest, sentiment just goes down and down. So you can deliver good results and you can do good work and you can do exactly what you hoped and said you would do. Uh, but when the results come in, you get sold off. And that to me is a difference between creating value. So creating value is, is delivering good results. And if that's not reflected into the price, which ultimately is your cost of capital and how you raise money uh, for future rounds to continue business, it gets very frustrating. And in fact, to the point where sometimes companies just run out of capital and they wonder, why am I doing this? Uh, what does tomorrow bring? I can't, I can't pay my people. I can't finance any programs. And then the investors think, well, why am I even invested in this company? And it just snowballs, so on and so forth. And so I, I suppose the, the silver lining is there is that when things overshoot to the negative, they tend to also overshoot to the positive when they turn and they will turn. So I think it's an incredibly interesting time from an investment standpoint. And so that's that's the good news. You know, I said good times and bad times. And so the good times are is that if you come to this market as an investor that hasn't lost a lot of money lately or, you know, fresh capital or you have a contrarian counter cyclical approach. Incredible. I think that things are available for a tremendously cheap price so you can get real good value, meaning high quality people projects for cheap prices. You have to be patient because we don't know when the turn is coming. Uh, you have to have the ability to identify good people and good projects because the vast majority aren't good projects. And I define a good projects in the terms of the statistical probability of any particular project actually becoming a mine. Mind you, there's ways to make money in this industry outside of attaching yourself to a project that is going to be a mine, but you don't want to do that as, as a as a principle. You don't want to marry a project. But as an investor that you 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 want to get in and out, there's lots of ways to make money. So I think, you know, just to reiterate, it's it's a very interesting time. It's in markets like this, how I and my team built the org group. It's been a part of our philosophy to be contrarian and be fearful when others are being greedy and and the inverse. And so everybody's fearful. So I don't think we're being greedy, but we certainly see the time to strike, accumulate assets, again, good assets. We have an excellent in-house team that has the ability to evaluate assets, certainly better than your average retail investors. And I would suggest as good as anybody out there. And uh, we tear assets apart. We do not believe what you know we are told. We do not believe 43-101s. We believe the raw data and we have the ability to tear it apart and understand what it is. Doesn't mean we're right all the time, far from it. Geology is a very, very imperfect science. 
but it's all about mitigating the risk and improving your odds. And that's how we focus. We, we accept that we aren't a risky business. Failure is inevitable over a long enough period. But if you can pick good projects, good people, and have intelligent science-based insight on how you allocate your capital, you can dramatically increase your odds of finding that project that does go into production. And that's that's our goal. That's our mantra. It's Everybody asks, you know, well, you know, what's your objective? And 99% of people say, well, to make money. And I say, no, you know, that's that's the wrong objective in this industry. You have to set a goal that's, I'd say more noble, but it's not noble. It's really good business practice to the objective here is to associate yourself with projects that you believe will become a mine. And you don't have to do it soup to nuts. You don't have to drill the discovery hole and then, you know, pour the gold, which is a, you know, 10 to 20 year process. But you want to be associated with that project. Maybe it is the discovery hole or maybe you acquire after the discovery hole and then you bring it to, you know, the PEA and you sell it to somebody and so on and so forth. But if you can be a part of that process, you will make money as a result. And so, you know, that is our mantra as we, we, we want to be a part of putting a project into production. And I think as if we can do that, we and our shareholders will make money and will contribute to society because I do. And I'm not in this for altruistic reasons, but I do suggest that on my deathbed, if I was wealthy, if I'm so fortunate to be considered wealthy, you know, just for the fact that I can support my family and so on and so forth. But I didn't contribute anything. I mean, but I think like if I was a part of a mine that contributed copper, gold, nickel, uranium, something to society, I think I would feel a certain level of satisfaction that I actually made a difference. Well, I think that's great. And I think it's a very nice message in an industry that is often under attack, that there is something noble about helping get the world the metal the world needs. Now, regarding the investment, so you mentioned that it seems like it's hard times for exploration companies in terms of investment. So just to characterize that a little bit, is that in terms of institutions? Is that retail that it doesn't want to invest or that is sort of in and out? How would you characterize this lack of investment? Is it across the spectrum? Yeah, it's across the board. You know, to me, there are three pools of capital. There are, you know, very simplistically speaking, there are retail, there is institutional money, uh, which are large funds and they come in different forms. And then there's strategic investment. I would say the strategics are probably should be the greediest right now. I don't see them rip roaring out of the gate like they should be. I mean, I, if I was in control of a $20, $30 billion company, I'd be pretty aggressive right now, uh, be taking risks. However, that group is a little cautious because in the last cycle, um, you know, define it, the, the cycle that ended in 2011, 2012, a lot of those guys and gals maybe lost their heads for making ill-advised, you know, with hindsight, ill-advised uh, acquisitions at the top of the market, et cetera. And so I think this cycle CEOs have been paying that price in terms of deleveraging. I think they're by and large deleveraged, but they're cautious of repeating the same mistakes. I think it's inevitable. I mean, it's just a cycle. I mean, they will ultimately repeat it, but the frenzy has to come back, but they've been cautious. So I think the strategics are there, but they're being cautious. I think the institution and the retail, which I'll classify as just, you know, profit-driven, profit-driven investors, they are down by and large. Some of them may have had a win here and there. There are, have been some wins, but they're few and far between. And so that capital has shrunk and they're less inclined to invest further and take, take further risks. They just sort of will wait and see. There are a select group within 
the retail and institution that are being proactive and taking counter cyclical approaches, but those again are few and further between. I consider us to be that, you know, ORCAP in, uh, in particular is a, is a vehicle that we set up specifically to be contrarian and be greedy when the market is fearful. We don't have billions of dollars at our disposal, so we're doing things slowly and surely, and we want to make sure we're being right. But that's the whole mantra is to is to seek high value projects that are being priced really cheaply, come in there, make intelligent investments, and then actually just be active as well. We're not passive investors. We want to get involved and make a change at the management, do things at alpha, if you will, and buy good value, cheap and and, and finance good projects and good people. So that's you know us, but we're we're very small. I think that's the approach to take in this market is to be counter-cyclical. Um, identify the good people, good projects, and get behind them and be patient. Okay, excellent. So just for those people, I mean, we have a lot of students that listen to the program, a surprising amount of new people coming to the program from different industries who just want to learn more about mining. So just to flesh it out a little bit then, so when there's a lack of investment in exploration, the mechanics of this then is Therefore, if an exploration company wants to do a drill program, let's say, and their stock price is low because of a lack of investment, therefore they can't issue shares or they don't have people giving them money to make a drill program, this sort of thing. So they can't proceed. Like, is that basically the mechanics of this? Effectively, yes. And I'll break that down in a second. But but you touched upon young people who may be listening to your podcast or, or curious about mining for the first time. And I want to speak to them. We need you in this industry. We want you in this industry. Uh, there is a dearth of young people uh, available to us. And I think for all the wrong reasons, because we are too often uh, painted as the bad guy, and that's completely misinformation. Our industry is head and shoulders above many others in terms of the ESG, but we dig holes in the ground. But if you want to have all of the things that uh, are required to live our way of lives, includes iPhones, telephones, cars, heat, housing you require metals and so you know we we ultimately provide the miners provide the fundamentals for uh, civilization but there are trade-offs to that and i think we do those trade-offs very very well um, unfortunately the, the the narrative is against us but it's a false narrative and so young people we need you it's the most interesting and exciting industry in the world we're treasure hunters there's good people lots of money to be made and lots of uh, interesting places to travel. So I welcome young people and, and get involved in the young mining professionals. If you can start somewhere, look up your local chapter there and start there. Now, back to your question, Adrian. It is all about access uh, to capital and how much of the pie do you have to give away in order to proceed and progress your business. Right now, oftentimes, there is no capital to proceed and progress your business. So it's not just about the cost of capital, which is something that's very important. It's about, is there any capital? And right now, I would suggest for 75% of the companies out there, there is no capital. And so they have their heads down, they're buried in the sand, they're not paying anything to anybody, and they're just sitting, praying, and waiting, which is a terrible strategy, which snowballs on to the negative, and people will just look for the exit at any opportunity. If there's a bid, it'll be hit. Um, for the others, it's it's a function of cost of capital. And if your share price is a dollar, well, you can raise money at a dollar. If your share price is at 10 cents, you know, the same is true, but it's less dilution, meaning again, uh, how much of the pie of your existing pie do you have to give away to new money coming in? And that new money is what allows you to, in essence, create additional value, drill more holes, 
publish a feasibility report, et cetera. And, you know, that also has a lot of implications. But, you know, this whole industry is predicated on the, on the holy trinity of people, property, and capital. And you want good people because good people can tell a good project from a bad project. And they can kill a bad project quickly or identify the good projects you want to acquire. But you need money to pay these good people. If you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, says somebody smart once told me and so you 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 do need to grease the wheel no you know nobody's in this business for charity and you know you want to put holes in the ground which is fundamentally how we add value to to our projects uh, that requires a lot of money so it's there's no there's no question about it. it's a capital intensive business the junior resource industry is the, we are perpetual capital raisers I think of us as research and development. I think that's almost a better way to think of us. And I would suggest that our industry probably does more R&D than any other industry. People think R&D is, you know, biotech or or pharma. While I don't have any empirical evidence, but I would suggest that the exploration industry in Canada probably does more R&D than anybody. But that's how we do. We don't have revenues. And so we need to sell our shares, i.e. our cost of capital, to fund this research and development of mother nature and her uh, and the, the earth's crust very good thank you for explaining that for us now i assume of course you've seen the canadian government has announced that they are looking to speed up the permitting process obviously you can't know too much about how that's going to turn out because i think they said end of year which didn't sound too speedy to me to be perfectly frank but so be it maybe it's speedy in governmental terms but how are things now in terms of permitting like is it still challenging it was basically the biggest issue i've heard from miners in the past is the length of permitting times uh what say you well adrian if i recall correctly maybe a year maybe a year and a half ago maybe two years ago we had a conversation where you asked me is anybody calling you and asking you about this and you know what is the permitting like and i and i and i think i was you know pretty uh, critical of, of the circumstances where i said look if any of these forecasts for call it net zero are real, which they're not, they're all completely fallacies, a noble goal, but timeframes are fallacies. But even if they are half true, there is going to be required a fundamental, and I, I repeat, a fundamental change in how projects are permitted. It is impossible for us to meet the metal demands that are required to transition away from fossil fuels towards so-called electrification without a huge amount of new copper, nickel, uranium, and many, many other metals that are required. These are the things that supplant the burning of fossil fuels. So if you're serious about that, you need to unshackle the supply and the supply is totally shackled by a black box of a permitting regime. And it's not just in Canada, it's, it's kind of everywhere, but Canada is certainly no exception you're right, the federal government recently said that they are going to look to streamline that. And I think, well, look, that's good. I think that's a step in the right direction. At least they're talking about it. But I have seen no practical changes whatsoever. Permitting is extremely challenging. I think that's sort of a tripartite situation. In terms of permitting, there is the the government, the traditional governments, if you will, the federal, provincial, municipal. And then, of course, there are the First Nations who are at the table. And then there's industry people who finance it. And and oftentimes the First Nations are, are, are quite, quite frankly, very frustrated with the province. And, and frankly, the industry in turn is also frustrated because there is a, a never ending stream of confusion and miscommunication and misunderstanding. Too often it's misunderstanding. 
about how things progress. And I think the First Nations are requesting a duty to consult. It is the provincial responsibility to consult, but then somehow the industry gets caught up in the middle of that. And, these, and so do these projects. And so there's just not clarity. I don't offer solutions necessarily. All I can tell you is experience that uh, these things are extremely inefficient. I believe that local communities, whether they're First Nations or not, deserve to participate in the wealth creation and the offset of industries that that occur for mining. And I think if everybody did have that attitude that, hey, let's let the explorers find this pie, okay, this very wealthy pie that's sitting in the ground, let them find it first. And then when it's there and you know it's real, then let's worry about splitting it up and slicing it and divvying it up. I Again, I emphasize all local communities and governments deserve a piece of the pie and shareholders because they take that risk. But when you do find an economic deposit, there's many ways that uh, all stakeholders can benefit. But you got to get to that point. And I think in, in many instances, permitting issues and, and social license issues are preventing good people, good projects from even getting to that point. And, and I think that's detrimental to the economy. It's detrimental to local communities. It's detrimental to the First Nations who oftentimes want jobs and all sorts of economic benefits from mining where before there was nothing. So I implore Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Premier Ford, give me a call. I'll give you my perspective. I'd love to have those conversations, but nobody's called me yet. But we we often face, I spend a good deal of, I would say 20% of my, my time is is spent thinking about or directly dealing with challenges. Challenges directly related to our ability to do good work in various you know forms. So if I could make my job 20% more efficient, in fact, it'd probably be twice as more efficient if we just had a very clear permitting regime. I think we put more money into the ground, which would ultimately result in more minerals, economic mines, to discovery, to take them to market, which is, is good for Canada. And what I do know is Canada needs to really get serious about competing because I think we've become a little complacent. And I think the, uh, call it the, the non-Western economies are coming for us. They're gunning for us, whether it's, it's Russia or China. Uh, they don't have these so-called uh, issues that I describe. They have a, a totalitarian regime, which is not, I'm certainly not in favor of that, but what, what the, the you know advantage, if you want to call it that, is that they want to build a bridge, well, they'll build it tomorrow, and if any, there's no dissent, okay? And so the, the, the positive is that infrastructure, that project moves forward. You can't have that approach, obviously, over the long term. There's other social consequences that, that evolve out of that, but the point is they're catching up, and Canada has become complacent, and the United States, too, there's no exception there. We've had it so good for so long, and we are uh, as wealthy as, as any society has ever been in the history of time, and we think that can't end. Okay, excellent. And I agree with you. And so if I understand you correctly, then, or tell me if you agree with this, as far as your concern, then, as far as the exploration process, it sounds to me like you would like to reduce the overhead at the beginning of the exploration project in terms of actually just identifying and locating where a deposit, you know, even might be. And that you're saying right now, just to do that, there is way too much overhead in terms of everything. And that's just too heavy. So we're not even finding out what's there. Would that be a correct characterization? 
Absolutely. 100%. Uh, that's what I was implying. But that's not to say that even projects that are advanced, so projects that are well-developed and looking to go to production, face similar challenges, although I deal with that less. So I think the entire permitting regime, while noble in its cause, and its cause is to make sure everything's done right, and I think everybody wants to do things right because that's good business. Nobody wants to pollute. Nobody wants to do anything bad, although under the exception that everything has a trade-off. And we know how to do it well. That's the thing. It's like we don't operate like we did 100 years ago when the slag was dumped in you know, Lake Simcoe or wherever it was. It's just we don't do that anymore. There are closed-loop systems. There are accidents. There are industrial accidents. We'll never avoid that. But we know how to mine properly and never perfectly, but we, we do things quite responsibly. So I think that the permitting regime needs to uh, have these checks and balances, but also needs to consolidate. There's, you know, I think, you know, if you're going to take something to production, there's hundreds of permits. I mean, you know, I don't want to say there should be one permit, but I mean, ultimately it should be, you know, one permit. There should be one regime at the government level that coalesces everything uh, and that's including the First Nations and, and the local communities who are not necessarily First Nations. They should have a say, too. But it, it's just a multi-year process. It can be reversed on a whim for a technicality, for opposition. There's And there's always going to be, and that's the other thing that's very important, there's always going to be somebody who has a problem with it. And we are never going to please everybody. And we have to stop that mentality. I think that's sort of a, not to pontificate, but everybody is trying to please everybody these days. And all it's doing is pissing everybody off. So it's the exact opposite effect. So we have to accept, again, these trade-offs. We have to accept that some people aren't going to be happy, but for the greater good and for our health of the economy uh, nationally and competitive internationally, we need to develop our mineral projects. In Canada, that's the other thing. Canada is just absolutely well-endowed with phenomenal resources from oil and gas, which is still very much a thing and will likely be a thing, you know, until I'm dead and buried, uh, but also call it these transition metals and, and of course, gold. So, yeah, very fascinating. And it's interesting you mentioned oil and gas. I mean, tell me what you think about this as we're sort of wrapping up here. But do you find that the same thing is happening in kind of mining as oil and gas in the sense that I think you were saying earlier, Companies got burned in the last 15 years, let's say, by overextending themselves, overpaying for projects that didn't really go anywhere. And I think you saw the same thing happen in oil and gas. And now these bigger mining companies, the shareholders are basically saying, "We just, just give us the money back. We don't want you to spend a whole bunch of money. And so it's feeding into this kind of chronic underinvestment. If anything, it's making it worse. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I do think there is an underinvestment in oil and gas. There's an underinvestment in hard rock uh, metals as well. That's exactly what we're seeing. And then I think that, you know, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, this this overshoot of negative sentiment tends to lead to an overshoot in positive sentiment, which is a, a, an exact parallel of what you're talking about here is the underinvestment will lead to an overinvestment. So that is what's uh, you know on the horizon, which is great news. We just don't know when, and we don't know when we are going to get back to looking for and developing and progressing these projects. But I think the hard reality is we're going to need them, both oil and gas. We need oil and gas. I'm going to go out in my car and I'm going to go to the grocery store and my car runs on oil and gas. And so does the airplane and, and so does the plastic in your earphones. I mean, so to suggest that we don't need oil and gas is, is quite naive. 
and the same for metals, which are the building blocks of, of our society, and still an important part of these transition metals, which is a theme, but there's no question that we need more of them. And I think also the final point I'll say is where we get them is becoming more and more important. So call it the geopolitical issues. We are going to be a lot more cautious about doing business with the DRC, the Chinese, all these places that are deemed less than desirable because of human rights issues, but also logistical issues. COVID showed a lot of weak points in the global supply chain. You can't be so sure you're going to get toilet paper from the grocery store, let alone the nickel uh, that you require for various widgets. So I think that brings into question and focus the importance of metals and mining on our continent, more specifically within Canada. Uh, Canada is very well positioned uh, because it's at the doorstep of the world's largest market. And I do believe that productivity and infrastructure, call it the manufacturing industry out of necessity, is going to be reinvigorated over the next 10 to 20 years. On this continent, we're going to be seeing reshoring of all the stuff that was offshored for, again, probably geopolitical reasons. And the, the mining industry is going to want to feed that supply chain with all of our precious and uh, base metals. Final question. Please tell us what is coming up on the Young Mining Professional calendar. Where are we in the calendar? If people are interested, when and where, you know, what should people do? So there's really two aspects. One, I encourage everybody to go to youngminingprofessionals.com. There are chapters on six continents. Every chapter has all sorts of uh, amazing events. Uh, here in Toronto, I believe we're having Tony McCooch, a uh, very well-known guy, friend, uh, is coming to speak. I believe it's in September or October. That's the latest event for Toronto. And in terms of what's closest to my heart, where I spend most of my time, is the scholarship program. We have about $225,000 this year we are giving away to students. If you go to ympscholarships.com, they're all listed there. It's to promote uh, young people to come into this industry, but also further their education in the natural resource sector. Uh, there's 45 scholarships. Uh, it's easy to apply. And we love giving the money away. And we have a lot of great sponsors. Um, and if there's any sponsors out there that want to create their own scholarship, we we customize it and we work with you to uh, develop a program that that makes sense for your business. So uh, irrespective, check Young Mining Professionals out. It's a great way to get involved and get into the industry. Stephen Stewart, CEO and director of the Org Group and founder and chairman of YMP Scholarship Fund. Thank you for joining us and sharing your insight once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you so much, Adrian. It's always great to have Stephen Stewart on. So another big thank you to the CEO of the Org Group and the chairman and founder of the Young Mining Professional Scholarship Fund. It's always interesting. And I hope Prime Minister Trudeau and... Doug Ford actually call Stephen Stewart because you might as well. He's working with seven exploration companies. He probably knows a thing or two on how things could be streamlined, so probably well worth your while. And as I mentioned earlier, the Canadian Mining Symposium is occurring in London on October 12th and 13th. So secure your ticket now at events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.